Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. What we're doing tonight is a little bit of kind of a one-off talk because when we read Genesis 15 last week, there was a verse right in the middle of it. We've been going through the life of Abraham, uh, kind of saying this is God, a, in the life of Abraham is this picture of God's big thesis statement uh, for what he plans to do. And right in the middle of this um, chapter 15, it says this about Abram. And he believed the Lord and it counted to him and he counted it to him as righteousness. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that verse tonight. Because that verse is the verse that the doctrine of justification, uh, especially in the book of Romans, is built on. And you can see the passages from Romans. I'll read Romans 4 real quickly. Uh, Paul is explaining to Christians, like, here's what it means to be a Christian. He says, you can look at Abraham to understand what it means to be a Christian. He'll say, what, and this is what he says, what was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What he's saying is, what was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to his ability to keep the law? That's what he means. And he says, because if Abraham was justified by works, his ability to keep the law, he has something to boast about, but not before God, because nobody does it perfectly. But whether, and this is what he juxtaposes, rather, what does the scripture say? It says, actually, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. To the one who works, his ways are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you want to work for God's favor, uh, then what you get are your wages. But the one who doesn't work, but rather believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, Paul, we're going to talk about that Genesis 15 verse because it's a verse that informs so much of the New Testament. I hope to make it more sense to you. Justification is this uh, doctrine that Luther said, if you get justification right, the church stands, and if you get justification wrong, the church collapses. It is a linchpin doctrine. Um, That is the difference between, like, religion that kills and is not of Jesus um, and life. So we want to get that right. We're going to talk about it. Let me pray, and we'll get started. Jesus, thank you for your word. When we hear this, we need to get this right. Give us the ability to believe you. Give us trust. Give us faith. I pray that I would present this good news in a manner that is befitting of how good it is. I pray that it would make sense to us and that we would find in our hearts that it is the thing we have always longed for and the thing that we can't believe is true, and that's why we need your help to believe it. So, Father God, teach us through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, To get started, I'm going to borrow kind of a moment from my friend Sammy Rose, the guy who did our fall conference. Uh, I was kind of I was listening to him talk about some things, and he started his talk uh, a talk on justification with a little group. Never have I ever. Now, don't raise your hands, but we're going to play Never Have I Ever for a minute. And uh, here it goes. This this is going to help us get into what we need to talk about. Never have I ever wanted to be someone else. Uh, Never have I ever hated myself. Uh, Have you ever wished that you were smarter? Have you ever humble bragged uh, about your busyness, uh, about your grades, about your commitments, about your diet, about your exercise? Uh, Because you want people... Right, you don't want the reputation of someone who brags, but you do want the reputation of someone who's known for all the things you admire about yourself. Uh, have you ever wanted cooler friends? 
Have you ever wished that you were somewhere else where you think people would like you? Uh, where you would be appreciated, where the kind of person you are would be valued. Um, have you ever thought, no one will love me unless I, and you fill in the blank with the personal change that you think has to happen for you to be loved? Uh, it might be physical, it might be mental, it might be socioeconomic, uh, it might be social. Um, have you ever looked in the mirror and wondered if anyone would be attracted to the thing that you're looking at? Have you ever done something sexually that made you feel like you forfeited your right to feel clean or beautiful or valued? Have you ever had something done to you that makes you think, I could never be loved or I'm invalid? Uh, Have you ever thought, I can't say or reveal how I really think or feel about things because everyone would hate me? Um... Have you ever done things that for the bulk of your life up to that moment you thought you would never do? And you did them because you, you wanted to be accepted so you could feel love. Uh, have you ever believed, I'm sure this is no one, that when you achieve a certain threshold of success, you will be able to rest? No, I, that's probably not relevant to Stanford. But um, that, you're like, oh, that was mean. No. Um, right? That, you'll, that there's a threshold out there, and if you get there, then you'll finally rest. You'll feel acceptable. Um, Have you ever done this? Have you ever had an interaction, a social interaction, where when you leave it, you have to revisit it over and over and over again because you botched it and you wish you could replay it, right? Because you know what to say now. Um, Have you ever thought, I can't be the person I thought I was supposed to be? I know those are a lot, but those help us get into this thing called justification, which might be a weird word to you, might be a, uh, a word you're comfortable with or used before. But here's the first thing you need to know as we begin to talk about this word. The first thing you need to know is that the word justification and the word righteousness are the same word. So ju- righteousness is the noun form. Justify is the verb form of the same Greek word, dikaio. So anytime the Bible says the word justify, uses that verb form, it is saying to be declared righteous. And anytime it says righteous or righteousness, it it means the same thing as justified. It is the same word in the biblical Greek. So you need to know that. And what your righteousness is, is is the thing that justifies you. The thing uh, to be justified is to be counted righteous or accepted or acceptable or worthy. Now... Don't worry about the six points because we're going to go through them quickly. So we did never have ever. The next thing is, let's talk about what justification is for a moment. And we're going to slow it down frame by frame. And what I want you to see is it involves three elements. It involves a righteousness and an audience and a verdict. Now, I think this is accessible whether or not you're a Christian, whether you're skeptical or convinced of things. These things kind of apply across our lives. Justification involves a righteousness and an audience and a verdict. Because I think if you take these three elements, you'll realize these three elements are most of the way you conceive of yourself. So what is a righteousness? A righteousness is this. It is the thing or things in your life that you believe that you have to procure or produce or manufacture or change or obey or keep or obtain that will make you acceptable. It is the thing that you like about you. 
It is the thing that sets you apart. It's the thing that when you're confronted with failure, you resort to and you say, but I have this. So you still feel justified because you have this, right? What is it that makes you feel good about you? Uh, What is it that, right, when you fail a test and you see the nerd in the class who crushed the test, you're like, yeah, but I. Because our, our righteousness is not just one thing. It's a collection of things. You're like, well, I got a C on the test, but I also have these other things. Right? I have social skills that that guy who or girl who got the incredible grade doesn't have. Whatever it is. So your righteousness is not one thing. It's actually this collection of things about you that every time you encounter failure or every time you need to experience self-worth, you resort to and you begin to cite these things about you. Okay, It's the thing about you that passes scrutiny, the thing that upon close examination you think you'd pass, that you convince, you go to to convince yourself you're a good person. Um, it, it's, you use the phrase, at least I'm, to identify it. You use the phrase, at least I'm not, to identify it. Uh, and here's the easiest way to identify some of your righteousnesses. We all have these. It's just look at anybody you have contempt for. That reveals what you think is special about you. Um, We need to know that we have these things about ourselves. So the first thing I would kind of press upon you is what is your righteousness? What are your things that you resort to, that you hope in, that you hope to manufacture, produce, obtain, obey, keep, uh, procure to make you feel okay? That's your righteousness, your righteousness. But then secondly, there's an audience involved. So you have this thing, this collection this, uh, of things about you. And uh, just this past week, some of my righteousness, some of the things I liked about me, kind of got some stinging criticism from a good friend. And I thought my immediate instinct was, after that conversation is, I need to go back and tell them about all the things about me that I think are pretty neat. Right? I need to take these other items of righteousness and be like, hey, I heard you, because I'm trying to be a Christian, so I'm trying to receive criticism and not be all defensive at first. I heard you, but hey, like, hey, remember all these great things about me that are pretty good too? Right? What I needed is I needed an audience. Right? After that moment of failure, after that moment of stinging criticism, I needed to go grab all the things I like about me, and I needed to go set them in front of somebody. Right? I needed them to look at the good things about me to kind of rebuild my sense of self. So there is an audience that you submit your righteousness to. And it can be, just kind of like your righteousness can be anything, your audience can be anything. It's God. God is our final and full audience. But it can be Stanford. It can be friends. It can be culture. Uh, It can be a Greek organization. It can be fans. It can be a coach. Um, The harshest critic is ourselves, right? We are an audience to ourselves many times. That's what we are when we look in the mirror. Um, so justification, you have this thing, all your righteousness, and then you have these people, an audience that you want to set it in front of, and then lastly, what we are dying for is a verdict. We don't just like have these things so we can think about them, and we don't just want an audience to put them there, we want them to say something about it. We want a verdict. Because that verdict is what will produce rest for our souls. It is what we are laboring for at all times. That's the goal, peace. That is called justification. 
validity, the sure knowledge that your whole person is acceptable, is worthy, is approved of, is valued. Here's the thing that we all need to say, like judgment and judgy, right? We talk about these words. We judge people for being judgy, which is its own weird irony. But here's the thing. We got to be honest. We love judgment. It is what we are dying to get all the time. When we say being judgy is bad, what we're saying is bad judgment is not fun. Please don't do that. But what we're dying for, and I can prove this to you objectively right now, is likes. Do you know what likes are? Likes are you take this presentation of your life, you publicly set it in front of an audience, and then ask them to pass a verdict. Social media is a perfect example of the doctrine of justification, of our need for it. And the fact that it is, in some ways, our need for justification is the animating human experience. We're dying for a verdict. We're dying for our parents to say, I love you, I'm proud of you. We're dying for Stanford to say you're acceptable. We're dying for a lover to love us. Right? Social media is the perfect example of this. I'm sure... Take a bunch of pictures, okay, choose the best one, scroll through all the filters, publish it in front of all of our friends, and then wait for likes. And then gather our sense of self as to, you kind of have to know the range you're in. Like, are you a person that gets like 17 to 25 likes? Are you one of those people we can't stand that gets 800 likes? We don't like you, by the way, (laughs) Uh, just because you get that many likes. Um, But right Take your, the things you like about your life, set it in front of an audience, ask for a verdict. I think you can go through pretty much the entire human experience and see that that is the animating human experience. Make something of yourself, set it in front of an audience, ask for a verdict. And here's the thing. There, there might be one exception, but I don't think there is. This could be you, and I know you because this is me. You think, I don't live for people's approval. I don't care what anyone thinks. Okay, have you ever told anybody that? Do you see the irony there? (laughs) When you're like, hey, everyone, I need you to know something about me. I don't care what you think. (laughs) I don't have to explain that any further, do I? Like, okay, we're there. Yes, so yes, even you, who has declared to us that you don't care what we think, we know you care what we think. And what you care that we think is that we think you're cool because you don't care what people think, right? That's okay. We love you not because you're cool because you don't care what people think. We love you because you who you are just because you're a person. But my point is this. <laughs> you're not an exception. Um, there's the universal need for justification, for the passing verdict. And to minimize our faults and stains to put our life, some aspects of our life in front of an audience and garner a verdict in the hope that it is going to give rest to our minds, to remove our anxiety, to calm our hearts, to calm our souls, to feel unhurried. That's the goal. Here's the goal, right? Is to be able to sit on your back porch and drink a glass of wine and not feel hurried and sit there for four hours. That's what we're, that's what we're aiming for, all of us, right? Maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but you have yours, Right? We present our righteousness to an audience, ask for a verdict. Now, here's the thing. How do we usually go about doing that? I don't have to talk about this very much. You remember doing this 
just for Stanford as an institution. It was one of the audiences that you submitted certain parts of your life to for examination and verdict. But that same principle still plays out in all of life. That's a window for how I think we can view all of life. Um, Stanford wants to see grades. Shore up your grades a little bit, right? Stanford, you got to go work on your grades. you got to do better. you got to work harder. you got to raise them. Uh, Stanford values well-roundedness, so you've got to go work hard in some student clubs and some sport teams, right? Uh, Civic-mindedness, so you've got to go work hard for a nonprofit. Uh, and then Stanford, everybody, I've actually, if I haven't asked you this, I want to ask you this at some point. Everybody has something they're oddly exceptional at. Sometimes I ask people, I'm just like, what is your thing that got you in? And people are like, you know, like, I'm a world record whistler or something like that. If you're a world record whistler, that's great. I don't mean to make light of that. But you know what I mean. You have to have that exceptional thing. John Rogers is an amazingly gifted bird watcher. Um, is there a bird watching scholarship at Stanford? I don't know. Okay. Right? But we all have our things. You've got to have some kind of extra gift. Here's my point. We're doing it all the time in all of life before audiences. We are cultivating, we are working to build up our whole life's resume to sit in front of several different audiences hoping to gather those verdicts. The way you get there, though, is by work. Right? Whatever audience you seek a verdict from will be the audience that gives you the directions or the law, that would be the biblical term, that you have to keep in order to get the verdict you want. Everybody's following a law. The law is simply determined by the people that you want a verdict from. Now, here is how Jesus talks about justification in a parable in Luke 18, about what does it mean to actually be justified by the audience that actually truly can settle your soul for eternity, which is God himself. He says, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Remember the word righteous, that they are also justified uh, by trusting in themselves. And here's what else marked them. They treated others with contempt. So here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. Good guy, bad guy. Good guy says, standing by himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like extortioners. Extortioners are really bad people. It's good to be grateful that you're not like one. I'm not unjust. I'm not like adulterers. I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all, all I get. I go to RUF every week. I go to a small group. I go to, uh, the, to Grace Prayers on Sundays. But the text, that's, not in the, that's in the Greek. You can't see it in the English there. But <laughs> get what I'm doing. The tax collector stood far off, wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven, and beat his breasts. That is the physical motion of self-maledication, right? Bringing harm to yourself. Saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's Jesus' commentary on that picture. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is saying, here's the way to be justified and here's the way not to be justified. And spoiler alert, the, G, the Pharisee doesn't go home justified. How does he approach God? He sells himself on the life that he has worked hard to manicure, to put together. He chooses comparison points with other people in which he's conducted himself in a decent manner and he brings to the foreground what's exceptional about him. Does this sound familiar? Law keeping, doing well enough, doing better than others. Here's a way in which, here's how you can know that you don't understand God's love and you're missing out on how healing it can be. 
if you are always afraid of not selling yourself well enough, then you don't understand the doctrine of justification yet and the healing that it can bring into your soul. And you might, if you're here and you're like, I don't know what I think about Christianity, but what you're describing to me is exactly what I don't like about religions, is that people religiously sell themselves. This is a universal problem. The progressive and the conservative political movement, they will turn on you in a second if you betray their law. Sports team, a Greek organization, Goldman Sachs, the fabric of the social life of your freshman dorm will turn on you in a second if you betray their laws. Your parents, the CS department, this is my point. Up until this point, up until you encounter Jesus, because what Jesus does and what the Bible teaches on this, no one could have imagined it doesn't make any sense. If you start to feel like it doesn't make sense, that means you're finally understanding what it's talking about. Up until this point, we've thought to be justified, you have to keep the law of the audience that matters to you. It's on you to manufacture a life worthy of the verdict. But this is the thing about when we try to justify ourselves, and we're told this in verse 9, they treated others with contempt. Here's the thing about all the ways that we're trying to justify ourselves by working with our own merit, with our own hands, with our own imagination. The source of all human division, all of it, bring, up, bring to me any, like, I don't, this conflict, I don't buy it. All judgmentalism and all abuse, all of it, every ounce of it that's ever existed, rises from the belief that you justify yourself by law-keeping by doing good enough of a job to obtain a favorable verdict from the audience you seek to please. Because what that does is it creates classes of people. That's what that does. When it reside, when it, when it, your ability to be justified rests in your ability to work harder at making yourself more pure, smarter, better grades, more sociable, whatever it is, right, where you're craving that audience and that verdict, when you begin to do that, you create classes of people. People who are better at it and people who are worse at it. And because you're saying, now pass a verdict on my ability to get to this class, you're actually commending the world and participating in and actually actively asking the world to stratify people and value them at different levels. Self-justification is the origin of all abuse. It is the origin of all division. It is the origin of all judgmentalism. Anywhere any human life is devalued, its origin is in the instinct to self-justify ourself by our own work. Now let's talk about the biblical doctrine of justification, how Abraham gets it. That's how we usually get it. That's how we naturally get it. And this is where... I hope you pay close attention, and I hope I do a good job. And if tonight feels more teachy, it's just because I want to be—I I, want to be really clear. Um, I, I'm not a poet; I'm a lawyer, so I can't make things beautiful. But I really want to make them logical. Um, but this—how Abraham gets it—is vital. The Bible, if you read Romans, is always juxtaposing justification by works. That's our normal operating procedure. And justification by faith. And that's the alternative it suggests. That's the alternative God offers. And Abram is the place where we begin to understand justification by faith. Because there's this phrase, Abram believed the Lord. And that's how it was counted to him as righteousness. 
In different translations, it says he counted to it, hit to him as righteousness, or he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, righteousness came to him because he believed, not because he worked. And all throughout the book of Romans, Paul is over and over again saying, hey, no one is justified by working as hard as they can according to the law. You can do pretty well, and you'll think very highly of yourself. But no one is justified that way. And we will all go through all of life, Christian or not, trying to do that. And you will find that what Paul said is true. You'll never get there. But Paul says there's another way to be justified, just like our forefather. Right? Paul's writing 2,000 years later. And don't you see that the Bible along has been teaching that you're justified by faith in Jesus? What does that mean? Here, here's what Paul says in Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from law-keeping. So a form of justification from God has been made known apart from law-keeping. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, saying the Old Testament taught this all along. It's the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for everyone who believes. That means anyone. Right? You, if, if it's justification by work, well, man, whatever natural ability you're born with, that's your best hope. This is the justification that's only offered to everyone. It says there's no distinction. It's offered to anyone. Everybody sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. That's important. That's the difference between justification that's worked for versus justification that's received. Paul says, ah, They're justified by His grace. It's a gift that comes through the redemption that's in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And what does that mean? How can there be a justification or righteousness that comes by faith that you didn't work for? That's crazy. This is where if you... I know I'm doing this right. If you're beginning to think like that's... That doesn't sound right. That even sounds unjust. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I talked about this with the freshman guys last night summarizes it maybe better in one sentence than anywhere else in Scripture. But I didn't mark it. Let's get there. Um, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to become our sin. So that in Him, listen to this, we would become the righteousness of God. What's happening right there? This is the fundamental thing that happens on the cross. This is Christianity 101. If you feel like this is repetitive, you heard before, it's fine. We need to hear it over and over again. There's a transfer. It's not just that our sin is taken to the cross by Jesus and transferred to Jesus and he carries it away. It's also that his righteousness is transferred to you and God looks upon you and declares you justified. And there's no appellate court in the kingdom of God. He doesn't revisit it later when you look in the mirror years later at the mess you've made of your life and go, ah. Because he's not looking at the righteousness you're producing. He's only looking at the righteousness of Jesus when he sees you. So you are always and forever justified in Jesus. Theologians call it an alien righteousness. That means it's not yours, but it was given to you. Ours sucks. We all know it. We don't want to talk about it publicly, but in our beds at night and in the mirrors, we know it sucks. Our righteousness that we've manufactured. This is the cross. What Jesus does is takes his righteousness and places it upon you. 
so that you are always forever justified in him, that God looks on your life with sheer delight. This is the hardest thing to believe about the Bible. This is the hardest thing to believe about the Bible. Think about it. We all think God operates like Stanford. That's what we all think. That's why we're afraid all the time, both at school, but also in our interior lives when we come up against ourselves in our lack of righteousness and wonder, does God like me? God is the exact opposite of Stanford. The hardest thing to believe is that he loves you and that his love is never ending. And his love is never ending. And you're thinking, but what about all my unrighteousness? What about all my unacceptability? And you've got what? This is what you've got to understand. He's not looking at that anymore. The way Isaiah says it is God puts a robe of his righteousness on you. Adoption is a good picture of this. A child who is not in the family, who wasn't born in the family, is given a new name and now part of the family forever and always because the father placed a name on them. It had nothing to do with their performance. It had everything to do with the father's will and his love. Right? This means that we're given credit for Jesus' righteousness, that we get in on his name, that we're accepted because he is acceptable, not because we're acceptable. That really changes the way you even kind of think and relate to your own unrighteousness. It's not a terror anymore. You're declared righteous because he's as righteous. It's not earned by you, it's earned by him. And this is the important word in Genesis 15:6, and he credited it to him as righteous. Working for righteousness versus having it credited to you are radically different things. This is terrifying and destroys societies and makes us hate ourselves and go through life as hollow, angry people, whether or not we're a Christian, whether or not we're trying to be religious. This one produces joy that makes you laugh. You're like, this is crazy. The illustrations always fall flat. A couple of years ago, I got to go ski at Snowbird in Utah. I actually got to go last week too. But when I went a couple of years ago, the owner's grandson was a good friend of mine, and I walked up to the window, and I said, my name's Britton Wood. I'm a friend of Richard Bass's family. And they pulled it up on the screen, and my name was there with Richard Bass's name. And they said, dude, you, everything is yours today. I didn't pay for anything, and not because there was anything special about me, but because my name was associated with the wealth and the acclaim and the ownership of someone else. I didn't pay for it at all. Nothing came out of my pocket. This is righteousness. This is justification by faith. Uh, And here's the thing. Here's what it means by faith. Look, this is overly simplistic, and this doesn't. This maybe help, maybe doesn't help. Is this? You can't enjoy anything you don't believe in. So we might have this instinct. Jesus offers this. God offers this to everyone, and we might have this instinct. Think like, well, then everyone's covered. You can't enjoy anything you don't believe in. If I told you, hey, I made a million dollars, and I'm crediting it to you, and I'm putting it in a Bank of America bank account. If you don't believe me. You can't enjoy it. You can't enjoy anything you don't believe in. Now, how does this good news go from being a nice idea of like, okay, that sounds great, that sounds like freedom, to something that actually powerfully transforms our lives, that actually comes into your daily life and makes you a different person when you approach your midterms or makes you a different person when you walk into the social situations you choose on Friday night. 
to where you're like, ah, I'm not tyrannized by fear anymore, right? Two things. This is, this is my personal, how I work these things into my life. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to identify your righteousness. All the ones you're making all the time. And you've got to repent of those. Repent means to turn from. And the way one pastor said it is the difference between a religious person and someone who actually is free in Jesus is a religious person looks at all their bad stuff and is like, i got to turn from that. Someone who's actually free in Jesus looks at all their bad stuff and all their good stuff and says, none of that's good enough. I've got to let go of it all. Paul actually does this in Philippians. When he says, all the good things I've done, it's not enough. I count it lost compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. This is the way, this is the way an old RF campus minister says it. Don't just do something, stand there. Stop trying to justify yourself. We'll talk in a moment. Well, what am I supposed to do? if I? Because I've been using all of my resources to procure righteousness to set before an audience in order to get a verdict up until this point. All of my resources. What am I supposed to do with all that? We'll talk about that in a second. But we've got to lay down our self-justification projects. What did the guy do on the temple steps? He stopped hiding his mess. And not only did he stop hiding his mess, he proclaimed his mess. And he stopped pleading with God. Here's what the Pharisee did. He pleaded with God based on the merit of his well-put-together life. And he didn't go away justified. He went away wondering, did I have enough quiet times this week? Did I drink too much this week? Because his plea with God was based on his performance. The tax collector's plea with God was based on God's mercy. Got to let go of your good things. Identify your righteousness and let go of them. Here's the second thing. Look at your good things, let go of them. Second thing is this. You got to become a preacher. Here's what I mean. Everybody's like, oh, weird. No, no, no. no. Some of you should. Um, But you've got to become a preacher. You've got to preach this good news to your heart. In all the situations in which you are terrified about who you are. And here's what I mean by that. That you're justified in God. That you're righteous because you're in Jesus. So what that means is, all those voices we talked about at the beginning, when that voice comes that says, you are unacceptable. And you should really doubt your value and doubt your beauty because this group didn't give you a bid. In that moment, you have got to say, Jesus is my righteousness, not this bid. This bid. When the habitual sin comes back into your life and you're like, there's no way God could love me. You're right. He doesn't love you because of how well or poorly you've performed with your habitual sin. You've got to say, Jesus is my righteousness. You've got to preach to the voice that comes accusing to us all the time. When you look in the mirror and say, I don't like that. Yeah, it can be ugly at times. Spoiler alert, it only gets uglier the older you get, period, no take backs. There's no reversing on that. We're doing the best we can with plastic surgery, but it gets pretty bad when you get older. So guess what? It only gets worse anyways. That's a sub point maybe in your sermon to yourself. But the main point is this. When you look in the mirror and don't... Sorry. It's not in the notes. Uh, when you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't like what I see, Jesus is your righteousness. And you've got to preach that to that voice. When you hate who you are... Jesus is your righteousness. When you fear rejection because you, you know you maybe should say the hard and true thing, 
and maybe you're going to put it down and not say it because you're so afraid of rejection, you've got to say, Jesus is my righteousness, I can say this. When it's time to rest and the fear-driven Stanford achievement monster starts to threaten you, you've got to say, Jesus is my righteousness. When you start to brag, you've got to say, Jesus is my righteousness. When you begin to belittle and have contempt for others because there are ways that they are not like you or don't think like you, you've got to say, you've got to preach to that voice, Jesus is my righteousness. When you're full of self-doubt, you have to say, Jesus is my righteousness. When you're hopeless, you have to say, Jesus is my righteousness. When you receive unfair criticism, you've got to say, but Jesus is my righteousness. When you receive fair criticism, you have to say, Jesus is my righteousness. And here's the other thing. When you really want the cupcake and you've been calorie counting all day and you're way over, eat the cupcake. <laughs> because Jesus is your righteousness. Just, if nothing else, take that away. Eat the cupcake. All right. We'll close. How long have we been going? I'm sorry. Oh, not too bad. Not, okay. Maybe too bad. I don't know. How y'all feel? Um, what does it feel like? Really brief points. First thing it feels like is it feels like freedom. And here's what freedom is. I'm not going to go into this point. Freedom is not the absence of restraint. That is a crazy notion of freedom that no one agrees with. I don't know why anyone would ever say that. That's crazy. I'm not going to explain why, but surely you can think of, you can just see in our culture right now the absence of restraint is pretty much killing everyone. Here's what freedom actually is. Freedom is the absence of the need to justify yourself because you're justified in Jesus. Freedom is, the, is stepping off the treadmill. The marks of freedom are that you feel unanxious, that you develop the ability to listen to people and not only to think about themselves in reference to you. The marks of freedom are that you can help people when they need it. And really those are just kind of different ways of describing the fruits of the Spirit. Freedom also, I think it actually ends up meaning that you rarely choose to take long breaks from studying. And not in order to do something else that advances your goals, but actually just to do things like look around and look at things. To think about God. To meditate. To tell stories and to laugh with friends. And here's the thing about that long break. During that long break, you don't ever feel guilty. That's what it will feel like. That's what Paul means when he says in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. You know what the yoke of slavery is in the Bible? The need to justify yourself. He's saying, he's actually talking to these, these um, New Testament Christians, and he's saying, stop going back to all these religious rituals that you use to make yourself feel like you're acceptable enough Christian. He calls that the yoke of slavery. But man, there are yokes of slavery all over the place. So it feels like freedom. It's awesome. There's real freedom to be had in Jesus. Here's the second thing it feels like. What it, I'll close with this. This is really short. Right? You're like, well, if I'm not using all the resources of my life to justify myself anymore, because at this point, up until this point, I was using all of them to try to justify myself. And you're saying, I don't have to use any of those to justify myself. Here's what it makes all of your endeavors look like. Or, sorry, feel like. Your social endeavors, your personal improvement endeavors, your academic endeavors, your professional endeavors, your relational endeavors. It makes them feel like play. And I mean that in a really good way. 
And one, one pastor illustrated it like this. When the orphan Annie, you know the musical Annie, when she comes into Daddy Warbucks' house for the first time and just all this amazing stuff is on display. And Grace, the, the woman kind of attending to her, brings her in. And Grace says, which is a great name for this moment, Annie, what would you like to do? And Annie says, well, I'll start with the floors, and then I'll go from there. And Grace interrupts and says, no, what would you like to do for fun today? Annie thinks, I've got to earn the right to be in this house. This house is not my father's house who delights in me and wants me to enjoy his world. There's no way I could be valid enough or justified enough or loved enough to come to this house with that kind of presumption. I'll show that I belong. I'll make something of myself. I'll do my best to keep it clean so that he won't get upset. And Grace is saying, no, Annie, you belong. This house, these toys, your father's world is not a place to justify yourself or prove that you belong. That's horrible. That's why we feel horrible most of the time is because we are standing in our father's house and thinking we've got to prove to him or some other people around here that we belong. And she's saying, no, this is your place to play and enjoy. If you trust Jesus to be your justification, that he loves you, that he took your sin away, that you gave, he gave you his righteousness, then you are justified. And this is your father's world. Don't come to class tomorrow thinking you have to prove yourself. You're supposed to go to class. You're supposed to walk across campus. You're supposed to interact with people like a child of God who delights in the wonders of all the different things in your father's house. And when you lay down yourself justification project and when you trust Jesus it might it what this is what it ends up doing it makes life end up being everything you wished it could be but never thought it really could it actually makes life fun let's pray